Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Go to Primalosophy.com for one-on-one wellness coaching. My guest on the podcast today is former firefighter and author Caroline Paul. She's the New York Times bestselling author of four books, including her memoir about being a San Francisco firefighter called Fighting Fire, and her latest book, The Gutsy Girl. In this episode, we go deep into Caroline's personal journey from pitching stories to being one of San Francisco's first female firefighters. We talk about encouraging a new generation of gutsy girls, gendering bravery, overcoming our fears, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Caroline as much as I did. And if you want to support the show, you can do so by clicking subscribe, clicking some stars, and sharing with your friends. Enjoy. So I was born in 63, so we grew up in the 60s and really in the 70s, I would say. And it was just, I have to say that it's it, it was sort of free-range parenting back then or even pasture-raised parenting. You know, they just let, let us out in the morning and as long as we came back by dark, everything was fine. Nobody, parents didn't really watch over you. We were bored by parents. I never wanted to hang around parents or adults, um, and, you know, I think kids these days are way more sophisticated than we probably were, but we had a really great outdoor life. Did you grow up wanting to be a firefighter, or did you know firefighters in your life that you admired? I mean, it seems like a kind of a drastic shift. Yeah, no, it was drastic. No, I was did not grow up wanting to be a firefighter, mostly because it didn't seem like a woman could be a firefighter. We lived in a small town and there was a volunteer fire department and all the volunteers were men. They were the, you know, teachers at my school, uh, the store owners uh, down the down the block. And uh, the only women were the dispatchers and one mother I knew drove an ambulance. But otherwise, being a firefighter was not an option. So what led you to taking that test? Well, when I graduated from college, I was like, I think maybe many people in their 20s, pretty lost. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And uh, it turned out I wasn't that great a journalist. I wasn't that interested in the objective truth. I was more interested in the stories that we tell each other. And uh, but I worked for a radio station and I did the morning news for them. And it didn't really require anything but sort of ripping wire, you know, watching what came over the the teletype and uh, organizing stories. And I started seeing stories about the San Francisco Fire Department. It was 1987, I think. And they were coming under scrutiny for uh, being really insulated. They were being accused of being a racist. And there was hardly, I think by then, there was actually no women, or maybe they had just admitted the first five women. And so I was interested in these stories. And I thought, well, maybe I could go undercover and uh, you know, figure out this racist, sexist institution. And so I went and I took the test, which was happening at the time. And you know, I'm, I'm sort of very, I've, taken a lot of tests in my life. So I turned out I did really well on it and I started to go through the whole process. And it, you know, I went in trying to look for a story about uh, an old fashioned institution that needed to be changed and the racism and sexism that it embodied. And the truth is, 
you can't find racism and sexism, you know, just by spending a couple days, you know, this, these type of problems in our society are way more insidious than that. And I was just naive and callow. <laughs> and uh, it actually, by the end of this process of, ta- of test taking, I realized, wow, this institution isn't really what everybody says. I mean, there are definitely problems, but there are some amazing things about this job. Mm-hmm. And when, they, when it turned out that I had scored really high, uh, they offered me the job, and uh, eventually I took it. Eventually you took it, but at first did you turn it down? I did. I turned it down. I was so, um, you know, I think it was a lot my own insulation, the very insulation I was sort of, you know, accusing the, or not accusing, but looking into at the San Francisco Fire Department, I, I in fact was guilty of as well and couldn't imagine myself doing a job uh, that, um, you know, only required a high school education. And that sort of narrow-mindedness was, you know, I had to, I, you have to kind of look at yourself when you start pointing fingers at other institutions. So I was looking at myself and turns out that job was something that, um, that really suited my personality. I was already very adventurous. Uh, I had rowed at Stanford. I had qualified for the lightweight national team in rowing. So I was super fit and, uh, I was already, um, a pilot. I had already been part of a raft, whitewater rafting team that had gone around the world, opening up rivers, and so this this was a job that that actually I thought would suit me, and and I was right. It's different these days. A lot of people go in there and struggle with the physical, and also kind of bomb the written portion. But it seems like you went in there and just kind of nailed it. Test taking is a particular skill, and I happened to, I guess, be good at it. It was a highly competitive. There were thousands of people that, that took that test. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the separation between people was minuscule. Um, I just felt like I won the lottery, frankly. So was it kind of just taking on a personal challenge for you, or what was the turning point when you decided to take the job? You know, the turning point was actually so I was offered the job and um, I deferred um, because I was so shocked. I, I had gone in there with a specific um, goal, which was to be an undercover reporter. And I hadn't gotten a story because, like I said, that's really racism and sexism in institutions doesn't show up if you just wander around as an outsider and um, and an outsider who herself was lived an insulated life. So I wasn't the person who was going to be able to uncover that uh, as a reporter at all. And uh, so when they, I was offered the job, I was really taken aback, but I, and I deferred. And then fairly soon afterwards, the San Francisco earthquake happened in 1989. And I began to read all these uh, newspaper stories about the bravery of these firefighters, these firemen in particular. And I realized then for sure that, you know, there was way more to this story than, and to this life. And I realized that these were the kind of people who I actually would like to be with and could learn a lot from. And so I uh, went back and I took the job. I mean, was it a struggle to prove your personal worth, not only to yourself, but to your the other guys you're working with? 
Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so it was 1989. There were 1,500 firefighters, and out of that, only 15 were women. So we were, you know, kind of an anomaly in a lot of ways. And one of the biggest ways, I think, was that uh, a lot of the um, old-timers had never seen women do anything, you know, in any sort of real physical job. And, and I really understood that I was 26 at the time and I was of the generation and I don't know if your listeners will remember this, but when title nine came along it, uh, in 1972, it finally allowed, it gave girls in school equal access to sports. So this actually created a whole new generation of girls who were way more physically active. And a lot of the firefighters I worked with had never been exposed to this. I mean, they, um, they were of a different generation and so they didn't actually, you know, think that women could do this job at all. And when I came in, I, I understood that. I understood it on a couple levels. First of all, uh, they hadn't been exposed to women who were, had, again, lived a life where they had been in the outdoors and done a lot of physical things like I, like I already had. And secondly, I saw that this job was a very difficult job physically. And so they had legitimate concerns about whether women could do it. I think that's across the board these days is if you get the job, people don't care if you're male or female. They just want to know that you're, that you can do the job and they can rely on you in difficult situations. Yeah, no, no. And, and of course, and so the job is not for everybody. I think we both know it's like not for everybody, men or women, uh, but there are a lot of, well, I can speak for women these days, very kick-ass women out there, especially women doing things like CrossFit, who this job is perfectly suited for. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to be physically prepared, but how did you know that you would be prepared for a job like this mentally? You know, Nick, that was the real surprise because that was the one thing I knew I was prepared for because I had already lived, uh, uh, you know, I was 26. And again, I had lived, a f already committed my life to adventure. Uh, I had traveled around the world with a whitewater team that was opening up new rivers, doing first descents uh, in really dangerous situations. I was already a, a pilot. I, I was a paraglider. Uh, and I flew private planes. So it was not this idea of um, danger and uh, daring was something that I actually embraced. So I, that aspect of the job, the danger of fire, did not intimidate me at all. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I think, and uh, just to add to this, sorry, Nick, is that I, I it took me a little while to realize this, but while it seemed like people were wary of women becoming firefighters because they didn't think they were strong enough. It really became clear to me that the bigger reason was they didn't think that we were brave enough. On being the 15th woman in an organiza organization of 1,500 men at that time, did you feel like not only were you representing yourself on the job, but also all women? Yeah, well, that's unfortunately what happens. And it's really nobody's you know, it's, it's, nobody's being malicious, but it's whenever I went out there and was called to a fire, uh, or any other dangerous situation, 
I knew that I couldn't make a mistake, not just for me, but because I did represent uh, all women in the fire service. And, and it's, I'm not, believe me, it was not a, a pressure that I wanted at all. But it's just the way it's just the way it goes. And in fact, I remember saying once to a woman who, who was one of the first women into the fire department, I, I said, you know, I don't think um, we just have to ignore the fact that that there's um, that we're expected to be better than everybody else because we're representing women. We just have to, you know, go forward and be a normal firefighter. And she looked at me and she said, you're naive. Hmm. That's. You might want that, but that's not the reality. Right. Now, was there anyone who sort of took you under their wing and showed you the ropes? Yeah, I was really lucky when I, my second house uh, in my first year, we had, we would go and be uh, supervised as a probationer at two separate houses. The first one would be an engine and the second one would be a truck or vice versa. And we spent, I think... What's four to six months at each, I think. And um, my second house was an engine, and I was lucky enough to be with a woman who had gotten in in the first class. And she, she was amazing. Her name was Frances, and she had been a, she had been a paramedic in Oakland, which was already badass, uh-huh. as you know, as a paramedic. Oakland was a really tough city at the time, and she had been. I think she was a. She was, a, I think she laid cement or she was a carpenter. I mean, she just knew everything. She knew how to swing an axe. She knew how to fix things. She was six foot, I think she's six foot one. Uh, she was married to a sheriff. She rode a motorcycle. <laughs> I don't know. She was, everything about her scared the pants off me. And I also really admired her. Yeah, skill set aside, what was it about her character that, that you admired and also found trust in that you could come to her with questions? Well, I didn't actually think I could come to her as questions because the first thing she did when I walked in is look me up and down, and said, "Oh, you're the Stanford graduate, and you better not you better not embarrass me." And I didn't want to embarrass her. I mean, I'd already heard who she was because she was one of the you know mythical first five women in, and um, you know she's really no nonsense and she really took the job seriously. And one of the bit one of the first things she said to me is, "Hey, I don't want to ever." hear you say that you're scared and I was and I was like I get that that is something I would never tell anybody and in my it's one of the things I do in my life is I might feel fear but I don't necessarily communicate fear I won't tell you that I'm scared necessarily especially if you're on my team and you're relying on me yeah it would be a very strange feeling to have someone you're working with tell you that they're scared uh, I, that actually happened to me once. I was at a really, really big fire standing next to a, a firefighter, and he said something basically to that effect. And, um, yeah, it didn't make me necessarily feel good. Yeah. So we don't need to swap fire any EMS stories for the entirety of the podcast, but what kind of runs did you really enjoy? And was there a favorite that stands out in your mind? I know it was some time ago. Oh, I mean, without a doubt, I can tell you this because you're not going to think I'm insane, but I enjoyed the fires. The fires were why I signed up uh, to be on the crew of Rescue 2, which was the rescue squad in the city. We had two of them, actually. I don't know. Do you run with rescue squads? We do, yep. Yeah. So we're a specialized team that basically does all the, the rescues in the city, whether it be in a fire or 
someone, you know, trying to jump off the bridge or in the ocean. And so, you know, I liked, I, I signed up because it was the busiest rig in the city and also because the calls were the most interesting, but ultimately it was running into a fire that I really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of people struggle these days with fires becoming more and more few and far between and, but run volume is still increasing as far as medic runs go. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think that's having kind of a negative impact and it's leading to more and more like factory style work where people are getting, uh, burnout faster. Yeah. I mean, medical calls, I found them really rewarding. I think that was the one area of my personality that I really needed work on. You know, I mean, I think in the fire department, you can really grow as a person mm -hmm. in, in, in terms of your character, in terms of your integrity, you can really grow. And where I needed to grow was, uh, frankly, one-on-one -on -one helping somebody, showing my own vulnerability as they sh show me theirs. Because really, when you help somebody when they're uh, hurt or sick or dying and basically terrified, it's a really intimate interaction that I didn't fully – I was so concerned all the time with you know, making sure I didn't look weak or making sure I wasn't emotional, <laughs> making sure I didn't look scared, all that stuff with all those pressures that were legitimately on me, uh, that I didn't really, it took a while to fully appreciate the power of a medical call. And, but I agree the pure volume volume can really burn you out for when you're on the rescue squad. We actually, they didn't in the end, as the rescue squad evolved, we stopped doing medical calls because everybody became so proficient at them. So they used us for the more exciting calls like the surf rescues or the scuba calls or the coast guard rescues where we assisted. Um, and of course the fire. So, I mean, I had a, I remember one shift where we had three greater alarms and a, um, body in the bay and there was one other call. And so it was just like 24 hours of pure adrenaline the whole time. Was there ever a time where maybe, you know, the chaos was just too much and you thought maybe this is going to go wrong? Well, well, let me say that, you know, I, I'm sure that I, I, I wasn't the smartest, you know, person and for sure. There were so many firefighters who were so much smarter than me. So that might account for the fact that I often didn't understand the real danger of the situation, but always also what I think made it so fear was not uppermost in my mind is that I was well aware that, um, you know, that I was always trying to avoid humiliation. Like I didn't, I wasn't going to be the person that, that backed out of anything. And so I, in some ways I had an advantage that way. The pressure of being a woman made it so fear was the fear of actual danger was not the biggest fear. I think that's a really common feeling that a lot of people have is they're they're not busy being, you know, in fear or scared because they're so worried about not being the one to fuck it up. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's exactly it. So that that worked in my favor in a lot of ways. Um but you know, I think fear also I think I did I do have a higher level of um I just enjoy danger. I enjoy the psychology of it. I enjoy testing myself. I enjoy thinking, oh yeah, can you do that? Yeah, I think you can. But I, I definitely, I think the biggest, the time, 
where I hit almost hit my limit was when I was in a fire with my crew and I was partnered up with my friend Victor and we were the way the rescue squad worked is we just went in to we didn't have an officer we did have an officer but we were paired up and we were basically equal teams and we went in and this time the when we arrived the chief said look they can't find the seat of the fire um would you guys go in with a hose which was unusual because usually we just went in to, for rescue but we also we liked going in with a hose too we liked <laughs> trying to find the seat of the fire so we we're crawling down a hallway and somewhere pretty close by the thing flashed and we were blown out of that hallway and I don't even remember how we got from the hallway into the garage, but we were all, some of us were burned. I didn't get any burns because I think I was a little bit lower than everybody else, but a lot of people got their ears burned. And uh, I remember my friend Frank, who was, um, wasn't partnered up with me that day, but he said, as we were in the hallway, uh, the garage, getting ourselves together, mask back on, he's like, where's Victor? And Victor was my partner and he was not with us. And for a millisecond, Nick, I will tell you that I was like, whoa, I'm not going back in there. And then immediately I saw Frank turn and just catapult inside himself back that doorway. And it was just a millisecond and I was right behind him. But for that moment, I thought, oh, I've hit my limit. And then I just pushed push beyond it. And I wasn't scared anymore. And the interesting thing about fear, as you know, is that the flashover had happened. And it obviously hadn't happened in the hallway or would have killed us, but it happened somewhere. And uh, uh, it had already happened. So my fear was delayed. I mean, there was actually nothing to fear anymore. It had resolved itself in there. Now it was all about finding Victor. And he, in fact, had been blown back too, but he had gone the other way. So we found him really quickly. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that he came out yeah. all right. Yeah. So it seems like for you, I don't know if it's overcoming fear or just the fact that you're able to sort of befriend it. Uh, yeah, I think we're allies in some way. You know, I understand you know, fear is an important emotion and we need it to keep ourselves safe. But I think also as a woman, I've been acculturated. And I don't know if you have sisters and... Did you grow up with sisters? I do, or? yeah. I have an older sister. So uh, maybe you were too young to notice this as you're growing up, but the messages girls get is very different from the messages boys get. And I felt like when I was growing up, I was often always told that sort of I was pushing too many boundaries. I was, you know, in general, just girls are just cautioned so much more than boys. Now, I was lucky because my mom – she and actually both my parents, they were really intent on us having a lot of experiences as we were growing up. So we were pushed to, you know, join the swim team, play the flute, um, you know, bicycle really early, uh, get on skis, not so that we would be good at any of them necessarily, but just so we would have the experience. So, you know, I dropped the flute pretty fast, I'll mm -hmm. tell you. But, um, but I did learn very early on to push my push outside my comfort zone. And it just so happened to often be in these sort of physical ways, skiing and, and swimming and skating, uh, things that aren't, you know, super important or dangerous, but when you're a kid, you're learning how to push your comfort zone. And I, 
I began to really, um, that was sort of part of my personality, I think, thanks to my parents. Now, you, you said your parents kind of raised you with the free-range style of parenting, but did you find that when you looked around in society, you were seeing that girls were being taught that it's okay or maybe even like kind of cute to be scared? You know, I, when I, obviously when I was a kid, that none of that was conscious, but when I became a firefighter, I was really uh, interested in the way people reacted to me when they heard that I was a firefighter. Because instead of asking me, oh, you know, what kind of cool adventures, who have you saved today? Uh, tell me a cool story about your job. They would almost, the first thing they'd say to me is, aren't you scared? And, um, you know, honestly, that they'd never, they wouldn't ask my male firefighters that. I know that. And so I began, this began to, I began to wonder, like, why, why do people think, why are people asking me this all the time? And it soon became clear that that's just what we acculturate uh, girls often is just to be fearful in our lives. And I think this is a protective mechanism. You know, people, people think, and maybe this is true, that the world is more dangerous for us. So they want to teach us early to be, um, to be safe. But I think the way they teach us to be safe, which is to caution us and to stop us from doing risky things at a young age, the very things that, of course, they encourage in boys, this doesn't keep us safe because we don't learn things like um, risk management or decision making or confidence in ourselves. And in the end, it makes us much less safe. Right. So naturally, you wrote The Gutsy Girl as a sort of antidote for the way we acculturate our girls to be fearful. And you went and you looked at these studies. And after you wrote the book, you found that parents caution their daughters way more than their sons and that we guide our sons on how to do it on their own, but that the girls are too fragile and need assistance. And then that kind of carries over into adulthood. Yeah. I mean, this was a specific study that they did on a playground actually with one of those playground fire poles. And they saw that, you know, both moms and dads cautioned their girls way more than their sons about using this fire pole. And then if the girls still wanted to play on that fire pole, the researchers saw that uh, parents would pretty much assist them. And if the boys wanted to play on the fire pole, they encouraged them to do it on their own. And if they didn't want to play on the fire pole, they would still push them. So we, we raise our boys and girls pretty differently. And that begins, that starts really young and shows up in a myriad of ways as we get older. Do you think you're seeing a shift in this in today's society as far as bravery among women? I don't actually. I mean, I, I feel like on so many subtle levels, we're still sending messages that, that girls and women should be cautious and not push boundaries. And I feel like a lot of ways we as women are complicit in that we actually um are happy to sort of sit back and not take these risks and we're very quick to say mm, i don't feel i feel kind of scared about this so i'm not going to do it whereas what i hope is that women will say well i do feel scared but that seems like it still might be pretty fun which is the way i've always lived my life mm -hmm. So why should we be recommending that 
our daughters or, or women embrace adventure over the safe achievement? Well, just because you learn so much from embracing adventure. I mean, I think that when, when we're young, doing all those things like skateboarding or climbing trees is not just fun, which it is, and gets us outside and away from you know video games and uh, computer screens, but it also just teaches us valuable life skills like, I said it before, but risk assessment, decision-making, teamwork, confidence, all these things that we really need as adults, no matter if you're male or female, I mean, we all need that whether you're going to be a firefighter or not. And uh, so when we don't teach our girls this really young, we don't, you know, basically raise our girls and boys to both value these things. We're really shortchanging our girls. Yeah, I agree. So how can, once we do adopt a mindset of bravery over fear, I, I think I read previously about the daring do's. Yeah. I mean, I, talk to girls differently than I talk to adults. Like with girls, there's lots of, you know, fun uh, exercises to do, but like learn a knot, learn how to tie a figure eight knot or, um, you know, come up with a sentence that gives you confidence when uh, you're in class and you don't want to raise your hand. But um, what I really think is effective is what's called micro bravery, which is practicing bravery in in small ways constantly and so the reason for that is that I think when you do things that push your boundary uh, you uh, start to just know yourself better in those situations so for instance um, if people are scared a lot of people are scared of say um, let's say uh, cliffs or uh, repelling is a, is a good, is a good example. Yeah. And they'll, they'll, they say they're scared and therefore this is something they shouldn't be done, shouldn't be done. But what they're not seeing is that part of that fear is mixed with exhilaration because they're not used to doing daring things. And so when you start practicing bravery in small ways and there's these openings all the time to be brave that, I think boys see because you guys have been acculturated for a long time to always be brave and put your best foot forward and, you know, be active. And so you, you're well versed in the feeling that you get when you do brave things, which is a feeling of accomplishment, uh, confidence. Oh yeah. And, and I think like, for example, for me to give an example, like public speaking. So say if, you go up there and you find that you're afraid to speak in front of a group, but you, maybe you can step back and examine those emotions and realize that accompanied are other emotions like excitement and, and, uh, adventure and maybe focus more on those and put fear be on the back burner. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's one of the techniques. See, I think what, what people don't realize is that, and I talk about this a lot is that, uh, fear and exhilaration actually feel pretty similar right? It's like the, the racing heart rate, the little sweat on your neck and the shaking hands. I mean, that could be fear, but it also can be excitement. And so when the more you practice bravery, the more you understand the nuance of that. So, I mean, I think what running into a fire, you know, 
is a good example to us, probably not to the average Joe, but since people that are listening are probably firefighters, is that you run a fire, you know that it's dangerous. And there is that voice that says, you know, you're really not supposed to be doing this. But there's another voice that says, no, this is this is really this is an exhilarating experience and I have the skills to handle this. Definitely. So let's let's talk for a minute about developing thick skin. Did, did you have thick skin prior to entry to the fire service or was it a result of being in this culture where, you know, obviously it's not the place for people who are easily offended? So I definitely don't have thick skin, but I'm not easily offended. So let's see what I guess I define thick skin as somebody who's I'm a pretty sensitive person, but I don't I think the difference here is I don't often think that what someone else is doing is uh, trying to cut me down. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't want to speak for you, but for me, if I can look at what that person's saying, if it's, you know, like maybe a criticism that is complete and constructive, then I need to take a step back and look at my actions. But also you need to have the awareness that some people are going through their own shit and their own hardships and they might just be projecting and it might not be, you know, something personal. Right. Or it might just, yeah, exactly. It might not be personal. I have to say that when you get in as a woman in the firehouse, the uh, whole culture of the joking and the slamming is at once hilarious and a, a little eye opening because as women, we don't do that kind of interaction one thing I learned is from some of my reading is that, and this is a generalization, but a, a major way that women are taught to interact in the world is to constantly maintain parity in a situation. So we're always making sure everybody in the room feels good, taking the temperature, making sure everyone's on the same level. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And then, but you guys are taught from a very young age to always be one-upping. And that's not considered a negative thing for you, uh, but it's kind of shocking for us because we're trying to maintain parity and here you guys are uh, one-upping yourself as a way to interact. And so neither of those is right or wrong. They're just, I think, the way that that we acculturate the different genders in, uh, in our country. But the problem is, is when they come together, there can be a lot of confusion because here we are maintaining parity, trying to make everyone feel good. And that often looks like weakness to, to men. And we watch men interact and it often looks like, frankly, meanness. Right. So it takes a real understanding of the dynamics to fully appreciate what's going on often in the firehouse. And I have to say that I've never laughed hard enough than in the firehouse, but I also did not often take part in that that hilarity because it was a little bit foreign to me right and it, it's i think it's foreign to a lot of people when they first get in and also it's like if they're not making fun of you then they don't like you and yeah that's a great i mean i have to say that firefighters know how to have fun they know how to recreate and those are those are skills that a lot of people in our society do not have yeah and if you're one of those guys out there who thinks you're or girls who thinks they're getting picked on, it's like the the intent is never really malicious for the most part. For the most part. I mean, I think that I think it's best to consider that it's not malicious. Um, you know, it's there, there's no doubt that when I went into the fire department, 
basically nobody thought that I could do the job. But they were also really nice people. So that's a tension you just have to live with. Yeah, and understanding the dichotomy of control, your attitude and your actions are the only thing that you can change. So your reputation, what other people are saying, really isn't, isn't going to be in your control. Well, that well, that's the thing. I think it's really hard to – you just have to continue being yourself despite everything because, uh, you know, it's hard to change people's mind. They continue to see you th through a prism, you know, the, the lens that they want. And I know that I must do the same thing in my life. I'm not – pointing fingers in my life, I'd probably do the same thing. Uh, so you, you're only sort of the most integrity, the, the way you can live with the most integrity is just continue being who you are. But you will be misinterpreted and, and you will be, you know, maligned and also there'll be a lot of great people. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough tension, I have to say. Mm -hmm. What do you think has carried over for you, you know, outside of the fire service as far as development and what you notice like day to day, maybe some small changes in, in the way that you've grown? You know, I grew up really privileged, white, you know, privileged. Uh, and the fire department was the first time I'd gone into a situation where I was truly the minority. And it was a really important experience for me because um, – I could really understand what it feels like to be an outsider. I'd always been, you know, easily liked, I guess you could say the popular person. And so it was unusual for me to be um, not wanted necessarily or uh, didn't, more importantly, didn't understand the social cues, wasn't part of the, of the um, sort of dominant culture. Uh, and, I think that was an important experience for me because I really got empathy for for people who don't fit in, you know. And it's this isn't this isn't trying to set up a you know uh, people were mean to me and all that. It was really about being an outsider. I think being an outsider is a really important experience for people. Yeah. So I mean, it really sounds like you found a family, and that's one of the greatest things about this is it is a tribe. Oh yeah. I mean, I, some of my I still have friends from the fire department, and I every time I see my friend Frank, I say, "Come on, tell me a really good fire story. I want to hear what you've been doing." And you know, sometimes he does have some amazing stories because he's a, a really an amazing and brave firefighter. But please don't tell him I said that. <laughs> And, uh, but often he's like, oh, CP, it's not like the way you were in. We don't have any fires anymore. I'm yep. like, okay, good. I'm glad I'm not missing anything. <laughs> yep. That, that's uh, pretty much how everybody feels these days. But so switching gears here, I wanted to talk to you about your latest book, You Are Mighty, A Guide to Changing the World. So it gives kids ideas for ways to make a difference, ranging from small changes at the family level to creative, you know, inventions that could actually make massive change. Tell me about some of these, some of these ideas. Ooh, can I ask you a question beforehand? I, I totally want to talk about my, my books, but I want to ask, can I ask you a question that's been, that I want to ask because I looked, looked at what you do and um, I was looking at your blog where you talked about workout tips to avoid, Okay. right? Do you remember that? And you said avoid over 30 minutes of strength training. Oh boy, yeah. I have lots of opinions on the health and uh, the health and wellness side of things. Um, so my point on that was overtraining can be just as bad as undertraining. 
So I, I think it's necessary if you're going to strength train that your workout should be brief and intense. I am. I, I really appreciate that because I no longer want to work out with the, the duration that I used to, which was when I was a firefighter. I would run five to six miles a day, six days a week, and work out in the gym six days a week, lift weights. And I was very old school weightlifter, just free weights, not huge heavy weights, just because I'm really tall. And so I couldn't, and for some reason very early on, and I know this is also one of your admonitions, but I did not do squats, which Uh I regret. Uh, But um, so now I'm, I've really cut back on my workouts, but uh, and they're probably 30 minutes, but I'm really lazy. Yeah. Well, thank you for looking at my blog. But yeah, I just think that's so important. Like the, the firefighters are up against a lot of health concerns, but you know, the things that we do control are our eating and exercise patterns. And one thing we don't want to do is we're already under chronic stress and we don't want to add chronic strength training or chronic cardio into that routine just to add more chronic stressors onto the body, which will lead to injury, illness, and burnout. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the the food and you the way pe- firefighters eat often is a big issue. I mean I'm vegan now, so um, which I know you are not based on your, uh, but I think that when I first got in, being vegan or vegetarian was almost unheard of. There were three of us in the firehouse, in the whole fire department, excuse me, who were vegetarian, and it was um, caused quite the ruckus. Nobody wanted me to cook, that's for sure. Yeah, it's definitely getting more popular. You're actually seeing a lot of vegetarians these days in the fire service. Heading back into the direction we were going, talk to me about that new book. It sounds really interesting. It's, um, yeah, it's a, you know, I, The Gutsy Girl, which is was my fourth book, and probably my most well-known is what we talked about inspiring girls to be have more confidence and learn to embrace bravery and you are mighty is more for kids in general about empowering themselves to change things within their community or within their uh, any any uh, concern they have so it's about basically how to be an activist and how to um, yeah, empower, empower yourself. Very cool. Now you also, you're deep in the world of tea and you co-author, co-authored a little tea book. Yeah, that's, that's an anomaly. Um, my friend is a tea purveyor and I've traveled to some places looking on tea expeditions, which in themselves are huge adventures. And we've traveled together to Laos and Bhutan looking for mythical tea um, trees that that we'd heard about. And when he finally wanted to write a book, I said, oh, I'd love to to be your Cyrano. I'll write that with you. And I actually I'm a big coffee drinker, but I do know a bit about tea now. And I'm proud of that book. It's a great book. It sounds amazing. So do you have a tea routine you'd like to share? Well, no, that's the thing is like Sebastian, uh, he let me write that book, but I'm a, a, I'm a coffee person in the morning and then, uh, I, and then I'm a tea person otherwise, but really I need my black coffee in the morning. If you're going to be a firefighter, you got to drink coffee. Yeah, exactly. So what comes to mind when you think of your most epic adventure throughout your life? Um, wow. I, you know, it's funny. I've, I have, uh, 
been to a lot of far-flung places like Siberia and uh, Borneo, where I did first descents on rivers. And I've sea kayaked in Alaska and Baja. But I remember my friend Lars telling me, he used to paraglide with me, he used to say, Caroline, you keep traveling all these places to have these big adventures, but you know the most beautiful wilderness is right here in the United States. And so recently I've actually been staying closer to home and I really value the the smaller adventures. Uh, I've, I recently learned how to one wheel, which is a, an electric skateboard and it's a kind of people kind of freak out when they see this, what looks like a teenager coming at them and they realize, oh my God, that's my grandmother. Really eye-opening once you like start exploring the United States about all these national parks, you don't have to leave the country. Mm-hmm. But I also, you know, I fly uh, experimental planes. Specifically, I fly hang gliders with motors now because I hurt my knee while I was a firefighter, so paragliding is is not that great for me because you have to land on your own two feet. So now I land on wheels. Uh, but I fly a lot out of, um, out of a, uh, airport pretty near here and fly over the ocean and fly over Napa and the wine, the vineyards here. And so that's, that's pretty much my big epic adventure these days. Oh, and I also do surfing. I surf quite a bit. Nice. Sounds like you really do live a life of adventure. Yeah. I mean, I have to stress that I'm not really good at a lot of things. I'm just, really interested in the experience of um, being outside and feeling a little bit of fear and a lot of exhilaration. Mm -hmm. Are there any new and exciting hobbies you're getting ready to take on? I'm really interested in gyroplanes. Tell me more about (laughs) that. Well, they don't look like they can fly. When I first saw one, I I said to my friend, "That, that thing doesn't fly and I'm not getting in it. And then of course, about a day later, I got in it, flew with him, and it was really cool. And it's basically um, an experimental helicopter, and uh, I, I really do want to learn how to do that when I have to get a little bit of money together and a little bit of time. Sounds really cool. So just a couple more questions before we wrap up. If you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Well, um, there's a... I'm, working on a new project and I've been looking into women who, uh, you know, have been explorers in their older age and there's a woman and I think she's still alive. So I could possibly still have a drink with her, but her name is Barbara Hillary. And at 76, she skied to the North pole. And then I think she was 80 when she decided to ski to the South pole. She was a nurse. Nurses are amazing. Uh, if there's any nurse, big shout out to all the nurses. When I was a firefighter, that's one thing I realized how much nurses do. Every time we ran somebody into the hospital, it was always the nurses that did so much of that care sure. that happens. And uh, she's a nurse and she's an African-American woman, so born in like 1930. And so none of this, you know, going to the North or the South Pole was not something that was possible in her mind. She had no role models for that. And so I'd like to talk to her about, you know, how she got inspired without those kind of role models. Yeah, she sounds incredible. So what are your daily non-negotiables, things that no matter what will always be done? Uh, I read in the morning. I get up early and have coffee, and I have about an hour where I read. And it doesn't matter what I read. I can read um, the newspaper or 
the novel that I'm reading, but as long as I read, because I think I need to really concentrate to put aside time for that. And, uh, and then I always have to walk my dog. And I walk my dog without my phone. I mean, I carry my phone, but I really don't want to be on it. Not only because my dog feels cheated, but I'm cheating myself if I walk my dog and just I'm on my phone. So Awesome. So any parting words from our listeners? Uh, no, just be safe out there. Absolutely. All right, Caroline. Well, thank you so much for the conversation. Where should people go to learn more about you and to keep up with what you're doing? I have a website, carolinepaul.com, and I'm sort of intermittently on social media, Caroline MB Paul on Instagram and at Carol Writer on Twitter. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shakoba.